All right. My name is Professor Chris Alden. I'm here to introduce and open the event. It's a, a very, uh, uh, very uh, happy occasion. This is the uh, we have uh, tonight, of course, the director Craig Calhoun, whom, whom is known to all of you, and in fact, our our uh, visiting professor of practice, <laughs> uh, President uh, Enrique Garcia of the CAF Latin American Development Bank. Um, both of them have have uh, much uh, much to, to tell you this evening, but especially. Especially our, our new colleague. Indeed. Uh, so to, to you, over to you. Thanks. I'm going to stand up for this because I want to be able to gesture to you to show my enthusiasm for the event. <laughs> we thank Chris Alden, who has in many ways made this event possible. He's the head of our Global South unit, which is the sponsor for this event. He has spent years, literally, almost stalking Enrique Garcia to um, ensure that he would be willing to come uh, to the LSC. He succeeded in bringing him here for a very exciting event last year. He made it an exciting event in order to convince Enrique that he wanted to come back and visit the LSC repeatedly. So I thank Chris Alden for terrific work. Enrique Garcia is our new visiting professor of practice within the Department of International Relations at the LSC. He does have this other job on the side as president of the Development Bank of Latin America, the CAF, and we are hoping that he has enough time when he's not marking examinations or giving lectures to first-year students to be able to continue with this because it is important work. Enrique has been the executive president of the CAF since December 1991. He's been at the CAF even longer than that and has been an extraordinary leader in a key institution for economic development. I would stress that the CAF is not only a bank and thus a funding source, but it is a knowledge center that is part of the communication and the growth of effective knowledge and policies and understanding of economic interventions throughout the region and indeed beyond the region. He has also served as Bolivia's Minister of Planning and Coordination and as head of the Economic and Social Cabinet and he's acted as Bolivia's governor at the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank and the River Platte Basin Development Fund. He's chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council in Latin America, vice president of Canning House, vice chair of the board of directors of the Inter-American Dialogue, member of the advisory board of the Latin American program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and a member of the Dean's Council at Harvard's Kennedy School. You will see that we had to enter into intense competition to make it um, clear to Enrique that he wanted to be here at the LSE to join in conversation with us. Now, I have to say a note about that. Conversation at the LSE always means that students in the audience ask some hard questions. Enrique will be extremely disappointed if you don't ask him some hard questions at the end of his talk. So be getting ready for this. We want to put on a good LSE show because we are absolutely delighted to have um, Enrique Garcia as a new member of the LSE faculty and a part of our larger intellectual community. Enrique is going to lecture on rethinking a new development agenda for Latin America. There is an uh, opportunity for you to tweet about this uh, using the hashtag 
GSU. And in order that you have something genuinely interesting to tweet about, I'm going to shut up and sit down and invite you to welcome President Garcia. Well, th thank you very much, Craig. It's certainly a, a great pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, you didn't have to force me to, to <laughs> accept this, this honor to come on certain on a yearly basis, a couple of three, four times perhaps, and to be able to lecture because I actually one of the things that I miss a lot from the times when I was younger, like many of you, is that I used to teach a university in, in my country. And, uh, and that's uh, a moment uh, when you interchange ideas with uh, younger generations. Uh, it's a stimulus to do things in the future. The last time I was here and we had an excellent uh, discussion here, I recall the, the tough questions came. But on that occasion, I had some of my people with me. So whenever a, a tough question came, instead of answering it myself, I yielded the honor to do that to some of my colleagues. In this occasion, I hope I have a couple here, so maybe any of the tough questions, maybe they will be answering. But I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to, to be here, and, and why, why did I, I choose to say, you know, rethinking, rethinking, the development agenda of Latin America. It means that uh, something wrong with it, uh, what has happened. Well, the idea is to, to be as objective as possible, uh, to, to see uh, where Latin America is today, where it was, what has happened in the last, uh, let's say, 50, 60 years. What are the good things and the bad things? And what is the big challenge that we have in in Latin America as, as, as players, both in the governments and in the private sector. I'm very pleased to, to see in the audience the ambassadors of my country, Bolivia, and of, on Ecuador. By the way, the ambassador of Ecuador is, is at the time when I was elected president, uh, he was a minister of, in, in, in Ecuador. So it's responsible or irresponsible of my appointment. Uh, so I'm very pleased to, to see him, good friends like Alfred and the former ambassador in the UK in, 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 um, in Venezuela and, and the chairman of, of, uh, of Canning House and all of you. I'm very thankful for that. Well, uh, what I want to discuss a little bit as precisely uh, what has happened like Hamik. Why should we rethink? Because at, at the end of the day, if, if you look at what has happened in, in recent years, with the exception perhaps of the most recent events in which we see that uh, there are some winds not so favorable in some of the countries of the region, but we can say that Latin America has changed a lot and changed a lot in many aspects. It, it has, uh, especially in the, in the first part of this new millennium, uh, we had simultaneous elements that are very important. The first thing is uh, we accomplished a, a reasonable rate of growth. Uh, it was accompanied by macroeconomic stability. A very important element, there was a substantial reduction in poverty and inclusion was an element there. 
Well, that's, that's the good news. But the question now is, is that sustainable in terms of what has happened in, in, the, in history and the approach that we are taking? And let me go a little bit and, and show you that. The first thing is that I would say that after the Second World War, and taking into account the experiences that Latin America had in the, in the first 40, 50, 50 years of the last century, clearly it was shown that the highly, high dependence on, on primarily commodities was not the thing to do. And that early in the, in the 50s, a new school of thinking came out, and it came from the region, essentially. It was from ECLA, and Professor Raul Prebisch was the man who introduced uh, some, some concepts and principles, it's saying that Latin America should move away from these commodity-based economies and try to move into industrialization. That's the essence of what he said. And for that, he advocated a, what's called some the infant industry approach in, in protection, which was a modest one, but that was the way, perhaps, to start a, the development of things. So that was the, the, the first thing he was saying. Second, he said that, you know, the forces of the market by themselves and alone could not solve the issue, so that the state should, have, should play a role. That was the essence of the, of the theory, and that's the way it started. Now, like normally happens in many disciplines, what happened was that those who followed Professor Previs went to extremes. What he said, there was going to be a protection of, let's say, 15 percent, 20. Some countries went to extremes of 150 or 200. I remember in the, in the early early 70s, perhaps, at a time when I was in the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, Professor Previs, Raul, he was at the IDB uh, trying to, to write some of the experiences and judging what he said. And precisely in talking to him, uh, he said, well, these fellows went too far. And, you know, in... In the late 60s, if you would talk about Raul Previs in many circles, they, they said that he was the, the cause of many of the bad things that happened in the region. It's not true. He was a, clearly a very a, a good economist, and he had a vision that at that time was good. But nonetheless, in the late 50s and early 60s, more in the academic world, development economics became a very, very, very important thing. You, you had uh, different schools there. Uh, I, I mentioned previous, but you had uh, uh, Hirschman, you had Rosenstein Rodin, you had um, uh, Lewis, and different schools that were very uh, focused on the importance of, uh, of development economics, uh, development in general, which implied that it was not merely what we, the economists, tried to do to be economics, 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 introducing some other topics that are so crucial in development. And if we go to Latin America in the early 60s, there was a 
big fight be between two schools of thinking. One was the so-called structuralist school, which in essence came from the ideas of Previs and Hirschman and so forth, and the other one was the monetary school, and there was a big fight. But things in Latin America, because of the the dependence on, on raw materials, when the cycle is up, things became very positive. So Latin America started to have a reasonable process of growth, and in fact, Latin America uh, as a region, although it's very difficult to talk about Latin America as one region, because one thing is Mexico, another thing is Central America, the Caribbean is different, and even South America, one thing is the, the countries in, in the Pacific, and another thing is the countries in the Atlantic, but there are some commonalities that we can use in any presentation. But taking into account all these elements, I, I would say that in the 70s, perhaps we went too far. Uh, because sometimes Latin Americans, we have the tendency to go to extremes. So we went to the extreme of, of protectionism on the one hand. Secondly, we went to extremes in, in the role of the state. And thirdly, come, came the famous petrodollars. At the time when the Arab countries have this excess liquidity, the commercial banks in the world, the cities of the world, started to go to the countries, our countries, and say, well, why don't you borrow? And borrow easily. Don't, don't bother about the capital markets. We can give you money. And that brought Latin America to the debt crisis that was started in Mexico, and that's the period in which Latin America was forced to make a very profound adjustment. During the, that's the, what we call the lost decade. But simultaneously, in theory, came a change in perception. And it changed, and from that more structuralist approach, the approach of, of the Hirschmans, the Rosestan Rodans, of the Previs, and so forth, it, a lot of influence of the monetary school, which in essence came a lot from the Chicago school, from Milton Friedman and so forth, and Halberg and so forth. And in fact, that if you put together with the political spectrum of the, of the, of the era, you have Margaret Thatcher here, and you have Reagan in the United States, so came what happened in the 90s which in essence was to say, okay, the things that we've done in Latin America uh, are wrong, uh, the markets should solve all the problems, and you know, we, we move to what we have seen, a, a process of, with good and bad things, but that's what happened in the region, and with good and bad results. But now, we go to the, we started now in the new, Millennium. In the new millennium, we find a different world. Uh, I remember in the 60s and 70s, we didn't have China as it is today. The relative power of, of different countries was quite different. Asia was, was not a relevant player as it was. But what has happened in the last uh, 20, 25 years is a substantial change in the structure of power in, in the world. And that has had very good, good and bad implications for Latin America. What's the good thing? Well, the good thing is that no doubt that in 2000 and up to now, there is a common denominator in Latin America. Of course, there are always some exceptions. But one of the things that we learn in Latin America 
is that you cannot play with macroeconomics. That's a very clear thing, because we, we had experience in Latin America, hyperinflation in many countries, in Peru, in Argentina, in my country, Bolivia, for instance, in the hyperinflation, the last day of the hyperinflation, the annual rate was 28,000% a year. It was cheaper, you know, to, to take a taxi than to take a bus. You know why? Because in the past you paid when you got in, in the taxi you paid when you got out. So, so there was a lot of, you know, you, so that's a, that's a very interesting. Well, we had the lesson, and we had the Chileans and so forth. So the 1980s was a period uh, which we we call in Latin America the lost decade. Because we had to adjust ourselves, because the, the inflationary process plus the debt problems were so crucial that the adjustment was very tough. So that is in the memory of people. There, the bad news is that some of the young people that are starting to move, starting college, support, perhaps they didn't live that. And the worst thing that can happen to a country is to to be in a, in a very serious process of inflation. So that was one of the th positive things that we see. And if you go to Latin America today, with a few exceptions, you will find out that independently from the ideological differences that do exist, you have a, a pattern of macroeconomic management that indeed is very, very good. Very good. And you look at the figures. You, you look at the management of the deficit, fiscal deficit, you, you manage the debt, the international net reserves, uh, all those elements put together in the region. And I, I'm, taking, I'm going to different countries. You, you can have the, the Chilean model, you can have the Bolivian model, you can have the Ecuador, to mention Colombia, so for Peru, you have a common denominator. That's one good thing. Second thing that was very important in the the last 15 years is thanks to this dynamic evolution of Asia and particularly of China that has had a tremendous impact external shock for countries in the region that are exporters of commodities minerals and commodities and the so-called terms of trade effect has been of a magnitude that I'm sure those who were ministers 25 or 30 years ago never had. I ask you, for instance, when you were minister, well, I was. I wish we could have had something like this. This is remarkable. You put those two things together, and that has given a good impetus for the economies of the region to have reasonable growth. I don't say great growth. I say reasonable growth. But furthermore, it gave some freedom to many of our governments to be able to allocate resources precisely to attack one of the serious issues of the region, which is extreme poverty and poverty. So as results, you can see that the region, especially until 2008, when the Lehman Brothers and the crisis started, it had a very a much more positive uh, performance than what it had in the last uh, perhaps 15 or 20 years ago. In terms of growth, the average for that period in the region was about 
uh, low inflation, uh, the balance of payments, current accounts were, were in order. The debt issue, which was a very serious element to many of the countries, is not anymore a serious issue. And at the same time, you were able to fight the, the tragedy of extreme poverty. And you have very successful programs. It's very successful in most countries. And the governments play a role. You have the Mexican experience, the Brazilian experience. And all the countries, I mentioned those two, because there was a very specific, concrete allocation of resources. And that meant, at the same time, that Latin America, for the first time, was able to be resilient to the serious consequences of the crisis that started in the industrial world, which is the crisis of 2008. And of course, the first two years, Latin America had to adjust, but it was not a tragic situation. And it went up again, and we had, I would say again, a very good period. Now the story changes. What has happened in, in the last two years is a little change in the environment. Very important. And you see that, unfortunately, the rate of growth of Latin America that was above, for the whole period, about 4%, this year will be about 1.4. However, it's very important not to, to talk about Latin America as well, because unfortunately there are three countries in the region which have low, low growth. One is Brazil, which is the largest country this year will have a marginal negative growth. And the second case is Argentina, and the third thing is Venezuela. But you take other countries, and they are still growing well. For instance, here we have, you have the ambassador of Bolivia. Bolivia will be growing at 5.5. Ecuador will be growing close to 4.5, Colombia is doing the same thing. But the fact of the matter is that the conditions that were so positive for Latin America in terms of the winds that came from the Chinese impacts on commodities has changed. Why? Because China, for very valid reasons, is adjusting the model. The model that China had traditionally was a very highly export-oriented model. What they are doing now is to move to a more balanced model in which internal demand becomes a very important element. And that implies automatically that the rates of growth that they show in the past, which were at the level of 10%, 11%, that's a thing of the past. Now they are growing at 7%. My estimate is that in the next five, six years, the, the rate of growth of, of China will be below that. Well, it's not bad, but it's bad for us because that has implications in precisely one of the engines that was the, 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 the factor that it contributed so much to the region. The other element, which is very important, is that thanks to the adjustment that the UK, Europe, and the United States had to take after 2008, which implies very low interest rates, because of the liquidity that was put in market. That has had very positive implications for Latin America, in the sense that we have very low spreads in access to financing. And the flow of capital to Latin America in the last 
10 years has been extraordinary with good and bad things. In some cases, excess of capital has implied, like the case of Brazil, for instance, a very considerable appreciation of the exchange rate, which had negative implications, of course, in competitiveness of form. Well, again, now we are at a time where we are going to have a less positive external environment because of the lower prices of commodities, and secondly, very soon, in the next year, maximum two years, you'll go back to a normal situation in interest rates, and definitely they will have implications for the region. Third element is, of course, we did a great job in reducing poverty. Extraordinary. And in fact, that brought us to a situation in which you have a growing middle class in Latin America. A middle class, maybe it's not a middle class, but they consider themselves they are middle class. And a middle class which has different ambitions, different expectations, and technology put together, access to information that they didn't have in the past. So sometimes you ask yourself, why is that a country like Chile, which has been consistently a, effective in, in, in managing the economy and have reasonable rates of growth and so forth, has had some social unrest last year. Why is that in Brazil last year you had so, so many riots? Well, the reason is that this new population, which has grown out of poverty and consists in the middle class, are not satisfied with the quality of the services that are provided in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of transport, in terms of security, in terms of equality of opportunities, in, in terms of employment creation of a more productive nature. Well, that's the reality. So if we put together this change in the environment, with these new ambitions, obviously, we in Latin America have a challenge, a very important challenge, in how to, first question, is how we restore growth, but not any type of growth, what I call good quality growth. In other words, what you're looking forward is to have higher growth that is more efficient, less volatile, inclusive, and environmentally sustainable. That's the, the main thing. How you do that? Because I remember, I don't know if you mentioned when I had a lecture here uh, almost two years ago, we just concluded in my institution a, a very interesting and serious study that we are updating now. It's to make a projection of Latin America at 2040. And what was the conclusion of that report? Uh, which at that time perhaps uh, to some of the leaders in the region could sound a little pessimistic. Uh, because I tell you I, uh, myself that I, I go to all the meetings of ministers of finance, summits of presidents. One of the things that I, I've noticed in the last few years is perhaps an excessive optimism in terms of saying that we, we are all, well over, we're okay, we are, development is there. It's not true. 
There are many issues that have to be faced. And, and that's why the, the question is, what are the conclusions of the study were very clearly that if Latin America really wants to converge, converge in terms of income per capita with the industrialized countries in the last 25 years, it cannot be satisfied with a rate of growth of 3% average. It has to grow at least at 5 or 6% on a sustained basis and in a different model. That's point number one. And that's a requirement also to solve, to, to be able to maintain the successful story of poverty reduction that the region has had and go a little farther to improve equity because that's some of the issues that I'm going to mention in a second. And again, okay, the other conclusion that we have in that study and its update is how do we compare Latin America today with Latin America, let's say 25 years ago? Of course, if we compare among ourselves, we did great. If we compare with the UK, with Europe, we did okay. But it's better to compare ourselves with other emerging regions. And let's compare ourselves a little bit with these successful Asian countries. I, don't, I, I want to qualify this statement in the sense that there are differences in the type of governments they have. One thing is to work in democracy. Another thing is to, to have, you know, governments that are more autocratic. It's a different story. But let's go to some facts. Let's see. Latin America 25 years ago uh, had, in, in terms of GDP in the world, it, it was about, more or less, about 12%, 11% of GDP. And today, it's half of it. On the contrary, if you go to the reverse, you go to China, it's precisely the complete difference. Let's take, for instance, uh, exports. Exports to Latin America represented 18% of total exports. Today, they are 7%. Uh, let's take uh, GDP, GDP per capita compared to the, let's say, the U.S. United States GDP. It used to be 35%, today it's 25%. Okay, and then, then something to, to be concerned. Okay, the other thing is we want a model in which the majority of the citizens will be benefiting from this growth, for, from this situation. Uh, well, we have done very well in poverty reduction, indeed. But how about inequity? Unfortunately, the Gini coefficient, which in recent times became very famous, especially in this part of the world with the Piketty book on, on, on this particular issue, applied mainly to the United States and to, to France and, 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 and this part of the world. Well, the Gini, unfortunately, of, of the region, notwithstanding all the improvements we have had in poverty, have, has been marginal in most of the country. So there we are. Now, so what can we do? And I think that the first thing is we don't have to be pessimistic. That's the main point. What I'm saying as, as warnings don't mean that Latin America 
is in a, in a difficult situation. In fact, all the situation that is happening today in the world in terms of reduction of, 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 of growth, the, the weaknesses of, of the European economy, Japanese economy, all those elements that I have mentioned before, they have an impact in Latin America, but Latin America is very well prepared in macroeconomic terms in, to defend itself. Just take reserves, international net reserves. The international net reserves of Latin America are close to $900 billion. I would like to use an example of my country, of Bolivia. The day I accepted to be the head of the economic cabinet, a century ago, I think, I told my wife that was the craziest thing I did in my life to accept that, because I checked the figures of the central bank, and the net reserves were negative 150 million. You know how much are the net reserves of Bolivia today? 15 billion dollars, which is 50% of GDP. I use that, that's an extreme case, but you go to, to all the regions, so we can defend ourselves. If you go to the macro figures, the same thing. And I was very surprised that in recent days that I was here in London, it, I saw a lot of pessimism about Brazil. Of course, Brazil is not in the best moment because of many factors, especially that winds were negative. There was an electoral process that was complicated. But, but my God, Brazil is not in a crisis. Brazil, just to, to show that, the national net reserves of Brazil are close to $350 billion. It has the capacity to get consensus. Obviously, the, the election was a tough one. The fight was very crude. But Brazilians are better than us, the Spanish descendants. They find a way to get consensus. And so I'm, I'm hopeful about it. But going back then to what we believe is, is an important element. I think that we have to think in terms of a renewed agenda, which will be an agenda that not only looks at the macroeconomic elements. I am very critical sometimes of the ministers of finance. Please do not repeat what I'm saying, because <laughs> the members of the board in my, in my institution are the ministers of finance. And if they know that I'm telling what I'm telling you, they will fire me, and I don't want to be fired. But the fact of the matter is that because of the inflationary processes and those, all those elements that we have had in the region, in most of the countries, still you have the Minister of Finance or the Treasury, who is the head and the manager of the economy. And that is a biased approach, because the approach is essentially one of the objectives in development, which is stability. But the, there is life below macroeconomic stability. You have to talk about efficiency, you have to talk about competitiveness, you have to talk about productivity, you have to talk about the issues of inclusion, you have to talk about environmental matters, you have to deal into sectors which are crucial for development, and that requires a more holistic view, a view that is not only financial, but combines all these facts. So the first thing is that the countries should then to have that vision. Some countries are working on that direction, but not all of them. Well, the other thing is, if you ask me, what are the, what's the crucial element? The crucial element is, 
how we get the region to move from a traditional comparative advantage approach to what I call a competitive advantage approach. What do I mean by this? Comparative advantage implies that the region, in our case Latin America, South America especially, we are rich in natural resources, in minerals, in commodities. And so we export that. In addition, we have low salaries. And that's it. What's competitive advantage? It's not to forget about this thing. We have natural resources, we have good mining, we have to improve the technology, to improve the quality, to give, to give value added to those things. But we have to move to other activities, activities that deal with more knowledge, with innovation, with technology, so forth. For that, in other words, what you have to work on education, education, education. Education in all forms, and not only the traditional way. I think we'll, we need less of our profession. Neither, of course, socialists, economists, or for lawyers. You need more people with technical know-how. If you look, it's always good to look what the what the the, the, the Chinese or the or the Singaporeans or the Koreans do. They, what, what type of training they do? What what they prepare? They prepare for this productive transformation, which is a, such an important element. Second thing is, you have to invest more. Let me give you some figures. Latin America, on average, invests about 20% of GDP. I say on average, because there are countries, I was looking at the figures, in this, these years there are countries like Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru, those three, which are investing about 25% now. But the average is 20%. That's, let's compare to Asia. That's too much, of course, it's 40%. We don't need to, to invest 40%, but we have to invest close to 30%. And not only invest the quantity, but the quality. Select good quality initiatives supported with good studies, supported not only with technical matters, but economic, social, environmental elements. Second, savings. The savings ratio of Latin America, in other words, what governments, corporations, and households save of national income, in other words, they do not consume is about 20%. You have, you have countries, for instance, take Brazil. I, I take Brazil. Brazil, the saving ratio is below that. Well, okay. You, you might say, let's, let's increase savings, but you cannot increase savings without sacrificing consumption. You can increase a little bit. Maybe use better the internal savings through the strengthening of pension funds and things like that. But there comes, if you want really to invest 26, 27%, 28%, you need resources coming from abroad. And the best approach is to have intelligent direct foreign investment attracted to a country. And not only direct investment related to the traditional natural resources. Again, let's take China. 
We are very happy with China because China invests a lot in Latin America. But where is it investing? It's investing in, in oil, in minerals, and so forth. Why, why? Let's try to move also that investment to other areas, which will be of more job creation, that will create conditions to insert the region in the chains of production and trade that do exist nowadays. So that's the, the other one. And the worst thing where we are really lagging is productivity. Productivity, and that's the central element in which you require definitely to work together, governments and the private sector. It is not an issue. The government by themselves cannot solve everything, and the private sector by itself cannot solve it. You have to work together. At the end of the day, what I'm talking about is you are talking about political political issues, because it's how do you build consensus in terms of, a, of, of, a, of an agenda with top priority in, in areas that require not four or five years, which is, or, or four, which is the term of an electoral period, but they take 10, 15, 20 years. And for that, you need to have the strength, the capacity to have a long-term vision and issues that will be solved. And here comes the topic that sometimes everybody speaks about that, but it's not moving very well. It's regional integration. Regional integration in Latin America is not merely a, a thing, a romantic thing. It's part of this concept of transforming our economies from the typical comparative advantage model to a competitive model that will be inserted. Why? Because it's impossible for medium-sized countries or small countries with a small market be in the capacity to be competitive in, in this area. So you need an expanded market. An expanded market so that you will attract foreign investment, you will have rules of the game that will be clear, you improve productivity, you improve the, the capacity of creating jobs, and you can insert yourself in the world uh, through the export of goods and services that will be of a different nature than merely those uh, concerned with, with the commodity. But here comes the, the element of institutional building, which we believe is a very, very strong element that is required to, to, to be built. And now let's look at the institutional, maybe some comments on the institutional setting that exists in, in the region. And, and why, the, uh, let's say, these uh, institutions like the one I preside are important. Uh, development banks in general, the, the reason they were created, starting with the Bretton Woods institutions, is because of the fragmentation of market that cannot provide sufficient uh, elements for a good allocation of resources. And these institutions were created under that umbrella to stimulate good strategies, to have uh, you know uh, investment in, in strategic areas of work. In our case, uh, the institution I preside is perhaps a, a, very, a very interesting element that many of you perhaps don't know. We, we are really the only multilateral financial institution of a certain volume in the world that is owned, that's very important, by emerging countries. Because in a difference, when you have, for instance, the World Bank, or the Asian Development Bank, or the Latin American, Inter-American Development Bank. What do you have there? 
you have two types of stockholders. You have the donor countries, which are the United States, the UK, Japan, so forth, which put money, but don't borrow, don't, don't get the benefits. And you have the develop, developing countries, which put some money, but they are the ones who, who get the, the resources. Uh, so, in our case, everybody is a donor and a recipient. And it makes a difference because we, this type of institution has the advantage that it doesn't have a, a preconceived model. We don't go with, this is the model of 1998. All countries have to do this. No. We have in our group of countries, countries that have different ideologies, they work, some think the state should play a, 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 a greater job, and others believe the market can do it. Okay, it's their choice. The only thing we request is that they do a reasonable thing. They, they work with good programs, good projects, with transparency, things like that. The role of these institutions goes beyond the financing. I think financing is important, but it's not the crucial element. It's to play a catalytic role. And the catalytic role, as you said in your introduction, goes beyond finance. It goes to this, knowledge. So to have a, a network of connections, a network of, of, of actors, universities, think tanks, people of diversity, ideas that come from here and there, to try to put together a reasonable conceptual framework to help the governments, to help the actors adopt the right type of policy. Don't go and try to impose things. Go to persuade people and show examples of successful things. And for instance, when one looks at, at the experiences of, of these Asian countries, well, what did they do? For instance, let's take Korea. Korea in 1965 had an income per capita of $400. It depended exclusively of aid money, donations, grants coming from the U.S. and here and there. Where is Korea today? Korea has an income per capita of $23,000. It's one of the 20 most important economies. And what did they do? I asked them. I was surprised. Well, they, they, did, they did precisely some of the things I mentioned. One is to have a long-term vision, very clear vision, and emphasize on some strategic things that are crucial to be productive, to be competitive. One was education. Education, but education in a way that ties up very well with the concept of this development I have been mentioning about. Secondly, infrastructure and logistics as a very crucial element. And third, to promote intelligent, intelligent direct investment. Not an easy one, but to bring, not the money, bring technology. Because if we want to innovate, if we want to transform, you need technology, and you cannot wait 30 years to create things in, in societies where you don't have enough faith. You have to to bring them. That's what the Chinese are doing. That's what the, what the Koreans are doing. And that's what Singapore did. The Chinese, why do they need foreign investment? It's not money. On the contrary, they are suppliers of it. 
they brought direct investment precisely because of technology, market, innovation. So those are some of the elements that we have to, to try to, 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 to promote. And going to integration, uh, I hope that in this coming months, uh, there will be some more interaction, because they, they, every day new institutions are created. Uh, and, and we see the traditional integration schemes in the region, which are the Central American one, the Caribbean, the Andean group, and Mercosur, especially in the South America, the Andean community, which was almost the father here of the Andean community, uh, basically, I'll be very frank, is, 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 it's not there anymore. And Mercosur is having problems because there are differences in between the, the two largest economies. And of course, but you have UNASUR, but UNASUR is a different thing. It's, it's more a political, but, but it's there. Then you have the ALBA group. And then you have, so there are too many things, but it's the time to run. And finally, you have the Alliance of the Pacific, which was something that was created most recently in Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, and, and Chile. Well, the good thing, the good news is that I was invited, and I'm very pleased to do that. Two weeks from now, there will be a meeting in Santiago in which there will be a meeting between Mercosur and, 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 and the, and the uh, Pacific Alliance to try to see what type of convergence is possible. It's a, because I think if we continue the way we are, that issue of having economies that will be sustainable in the long term, that is not going to happen. We are going to be subject all the time, like we have done, been in the last century, to the volatility of the, of the terms of trade. And like, uh, like uh, Sepal, Alicia Barsina says uh, very clearly, one of the bad things of this great long cycle that we have in, in, in commodities is what the, she calls the reprimarization of Latin America. If you look at the figures, the, the proportion of, of exports that are in, in the primary sectors have increased. In many of the countries which were moving in a positive direction in technology, innovation, before, it was easier to be linked to that. And so th these are some of the, of the elements. So in conclusion, I would say that, uh, ask me if, if we're optimists or pessimists. I think we still can be optimists. And I use the word still. Because I, I tell you, you can say you are, like in the Americans say, the Monday morning quarterback. Say, you know the person on, on football, the, on Monday you criticize the, the Ronaldo because he didn't get the goal. It's very easy to do that. But quite frankly, we encounter perhaps the difference with other, of other institutions in the region. We have been traditionally much more conservative in our optimism, more cautious. Being positive, but at the same time, trying to, to mention that Latin America, if really wants to have a better society in which the citizens will have a much better quality of life, it's not merely to, to have macroeconomic stability or growing at a modest 2-3%. It means to have a more comprehensive approach, to give a role to the different players, to give a role to women, to have security for the children, to ensure security for the citizens, 
to have access to education to everybody because one of the issues of inequality starts when you when the young kid is born if that young kid doesn't have the opportunity to have a basic education in the early years by definition he's late in history so and that thing cannot be done by the private sector it has to be done by, by, the, by the government. But at the same time, if the governments want to do a good job in this type of public services, they have to have a sound macroeconomic situation, good taxes, avoid subsidies that are unnecessary. Because one of the issues that I didn't mention is that unemployment is not high. That's opinion. But informality is, is terrible. And sometimes in our countries we are providing all the incentives to remain in informality because you make labor costs so expensive that firms tend to not to hire people. And another thing, you get some subsidies in interest rates or in, let's say, foreign exchange that facilitate the importation of capital goods. I'll give a very simple example. Let's assume a, a country with a lot of informality and unemployment that decides to, to have a better service to clean, to wash cars, cars, wash. Well, if you provide an incentive saying, I'm going to have a subsidized interest rate for imports, plus a preferential exchange rate, what is the ambassador is going to do? I'm sure he's going to import this, this beautiful equipment to wash the cars. While you have a lot of unemployed people, they could do the job very easily. That's a very simple example, but I think that it's crucial that we take into account that these in, uh, subsidies and preferential treatments have to be targeted in a very important rational way to advocate precisely to have more entrepreneurs, more formal employment, employment that is linked to activities that have more productivity and consequently the improvement of quality of life is there. So I think that the future can be good. And the good news is that many of the countries and the, and the governments are starting to get worried because of the, the trends of the recent months. And that's in a time when we are not in a crisis because we have played safely in terms of establishing some, some, some positive reserves in terms to be ready to to face the, 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 the eventual uh, crisis in the financial market. So with this, I thank you very much, and I'm open to, to, good, to good questions. The bad answers are going to be given by my colleagues, the good answers by me. Thank you so much, Enrique. That was terrific. Let us immediately open the floor to questions. We have time for several. And, yeah, the gentleman in the aisle there. Yeah. We've got... Uh, the microphone is moving towards you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your very interesting and, and please uh, presentation. Please state who you are and to ask your question. Yep. Yeah. My name is Max Hold. I'm a PhD student at the Institute of the Americas at UCL. Um, now, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about China and uh, uh, specifically about uh, Chinese trade links with Latin America. Because if I'm not mistaken, 
And I think you said that as well. That the main things the Chinese are after in Latin America is, agri- is agricultural produce, such as soy and soybeans. Um, what does? I mean, I, I've read a lot of reports, and I think they said um, said this is largely unsustainable, and that this is uh, therefore a negative development. Now, do you, do you share this view, or what, what is your uh, what is your take on this? So is the question whether the return to primary commodity production is sustainable or a long-term problem? Yes, exactly. Whether the return to primary commodity production as basic to Latin American economies is sustainable or not? No. China is the question. Well, I think that what you you say, you know, definitely one of the issues that uh, we see in Latin America is that if we keep, if I understand correctly what you're concerned, if we keep just to the primary commodities in which we are efficient, we can be efficient, we are vulnerable in, in, in the long term. Uh, definitely, uh, I go to China very often and we have a very good relationship with China because I think we have to recognize the importance of China in terms of, of building up a, a good partnership. And one of the things that we tell them at the political level and also at, at the more academic and, 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 and official level is that beyond this type of approach, which has been very good for Latin America in the short run, we have to build conditions so that all this technology and capacity that China has been able to build in the last 25 years, they can also invest in that type of thing in Latin America, and and that that I tied up with regional integration. Let's assume that a Chinese firm which has American or UK technology, whatever, moves to Brazil or to Colombia, to Bolivia, wherever. If you have an expanded market, then that, that type of business, that type of activity will be competitive at the, at, the, at the level of the region, but in addition, it can insert itself in the chains of value that do exist, because then for Latin America, you have a very important market, a closed market, which is the United States, and you can move in the world. That's the world, the world operates. So I, I think that the main advice is let's not stick just to what God gave us. Thanks, God. Let's continue to use that, improve the, the productivity of those things, but not remain exclusively with those things. Okay. Good. There was another yeah on the right in the second row. Let's see a group here. Hello, my name is Estefania. I'm from LSE, MSC Urbanization and Development. My question is, um, where is security and safety for citizenship in the agenda of Latin America? Security and safety for citizenship, particularly in the case of Venezuela, and what are the uh, strategies at a long and a short term for that issue? Oh, well, definitely, in, when you compare the type of things that we used to discuss in development economics at the time when most of you were not born, when I was in the university, it was a much more simple thing. You were talking about a very technocratic approach to a certain extent, the Harrod-Domer model and cap- capital accumulation and this and that. Maybe you introduce uh, some things in, in the system. At those days, you didn't have those issues. But today, the issue you mentioned, 
You mentioned specifically one country, which is Venezuela, yeah, definitely. But that's a, a central issue in, in, in the world and in Latin America. Uh, and that's precisely one of the reasons why the strengthening of institutions, and when I say strengthening institutions, I'm talking about the government institutions, the state, to ensure good quality public services. A good quality public services imply the things related to health, to education, to ensure that there will be the conditions to build good infrastructure and logistics with co cooperation of the private sector, whatever, and of course, the issue of security. That's a very critical one. And if you go to the region, one of the bad news is that that situation has deteriorated. And, and I tell you, when I, I go to all of South America, some of the cities in South America, which until very recently were very secure. You can walk around, ladies can walk all over at night. Today you have situations that have deteriorated. And that's quite linked to the issue of narco traffic. And that's a very sensitive issue that sometimes is misunderstood. And one of the speeches that Latin Americans, not speeches, positions of Latin America, it should be a stronger position. And in fact, uh, uh, there was a, a group of former presidents who made very serious recommendations about this matter, is that narco-traffic has supply and demand. And on the supply side, of course, you have the poor campesinos in Peru and Bolivia who provide the coca leaf. And then you have the chain of That's a perfect chain of production and, and trade. And at the end of the day, it goes to Mexico, and from Mexico goes to the U.S. But what happens is that from Mexico, it's very interesting to talk to, to Mexican authorities, sometimes you have the transit of, of these drugs and so forth, and tunnels and things, and they go bribing people and whatever, but at the other side, in the United States, in the frontier, in the cities there, you have all the establishments selling arms. And so this is a very complicated, it's, it's, it's co-responsibility that has to be applied. And that has to do a lot with security. Crime, in, in the, and of course some countries are having much more trouble, but this should be a central element. A central element in, in an agenda uh, of, of, uh, of action in, in the region. Why don't I group a couple of questions together, sure. if it's okay, since we're going to run out of time. Others, gentlemen, the white shirt first. Okay, well, go ahead, go ahead. We'll get both Hi, of you. thank you. Uh, my name is Juan Felipe. I'm studying Latin American development in UCL. And the question is related um, to what's being done to tackle corruption in the region, which is one of the biggest like enemies to achieve development. Okay, and why don't you pass it and get the man the white shirt, we'll take two at once. Hi, my name is Manuel Figueroa. I'm doing the MPA here at LSE. And uh, I was very impressed with uh, your comments about the overall regional trends and how countries have been doing. Uh, unfortunately, I'm from one of the three countries that you mentioned had a negative economic growth. I'm from Venezuela. Along with that, we also have the highest inflation rate in the region, highest murder rate, and uh, highest shortages. So I was wondering, from an economic uh, perspective, what you suggest Venezuela should do to revert this trend. Thank you. Okay. I'll take this too. One more. One more? Okay, volunteer for one more. The woman in the purple top here. Thanks. 
Um, I'm Julia, and I'm doing a master's in political economy of late development here at LSE. Um, and I'd like to know, um, in terms of reducing inequality and promoting this emergence of middle class, what is the role of development banks and multilateral institutions? Thanks. Okay, we just hold on to the mic. I'll come back to you next. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'll go first uh, to you. I think that the role of the, as I said before, the role of the uh, development banks, if they really want to, to be uh, actors in the in the, this in the, the environment, the first recommendation is these institutions only are relevant insofar as they have the capacity to reinvent themselves on a regular basis. You have to adapt yourselves. And I'll give you an illustration. In our case, when I started President of CAF, the priorities at that time of the institution were uh, we were supporting trade, essentially. But that was not the role. And so we got involved in infrastructure first. Infrastructure, because the World Bank and the IDB got out. And today we are the main source of, of uh, infrastructure finance in Latin America. But that's not sufficient. You have to get to new things. That's one point. The other one is you have to combine with this technical and financial with, uh, with knowledge. You have to have a strength in, in, in providing good advice, but not to impose, to, to, to suggest, to have options, to, to respect the, the right of the, of, the, of the countries to select the, the best way they think, but try to help them in getting the best solution. So in essence, and of course, they have to be viable. And viable means that they have to be sustained. They have to have access to capital markets. They have to have a good rating. It's not theory. Many of the initiatives that have been proposed in many years, they don't flow. Why? Because they, they don't get to these basic things. So that's the very important thing. And, and I think we, can, we have some authority because we, 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 our institution, which was a very small institution, Five countries lending $400 million a year. Today we have 19 countries. We lend $12 million a year. And, and we are sound. We have investment rate ratings, high investment rate ratings, and we respect the differences of the governments that we, we have with Venezuela. Your question, again, you, know, you were concerned about Venezuela? In general, the economics? Or, no. Yeah, of course. I, I, we have to, to be realistic. Venezuela is, is experiencing a, a, a difficult moment uh, in, in terms of, of, of the need for, for serious adjustment. Uh, they, it's not uh, many people uh, were saying in the market that Venezuela was going to default, and I, I don't think it will. In fact, they, they paid what they, they were obliged to pay. But the issue is that some reforms, quick reforms are pending. And my understanding is that in, in the, this, this coming months, they will be making some, some necessary adjustments. Like, for instance, the price of gasoline. Uh, you know, you cannot have gasoline at the price it is. Uh, it, it, there's uh, three bolivares, you know, it's 10 cents of the dollar, you know, to, to fill the tank. You know, Things like that, and and of course, uh, I, I believe they also the, the bonification or improvements in the in, in the in the exchange rate situation is a, a critical one. So if if for those elements which are not such, such so complicated at the end, but it requires political will, and I think the president of Venezuela is precisely in the process of 
find the right coalition of actors to be able to undertake a, a, a program. So we, we, as we do with all countries, we are ready all the time to, to provide the necessary advice, and we, we, in fact, we have been doing that. Okay. And then the middle class, you had a question about, yeah. About... Uh, oh, corruption. Oh, no. Well, corruption is a, is a terrible thing that happens. Unfortunately, it's not an issue like in America. It's an issue of the world. If you open the papers and you look what's happening in some of the countries in Europe, you clearly see what type of things happen. Uh, now, that, that's a very serious matter. And I think that one of the elements that should be fought is to, to create the conditions in the countries to zero acceptance of that thing. Some governments are very tough on that. It depends on, on, the, on the strength of the, of the, of the president and the, and, the, and the ethical values of, of those, because that's a very terrible thing. But again, it's like narco-traffic. It takes two, like the Argentines say, two to tango. Somebody is, is given a bribe, somebody is given a bribe. And so I think the, 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 the rules of that have to be stronger, especially to the foreign companies in their countries of origin, and of course Intel. But that's indeed a very serious problem. But again, it's not a problem of Latin America alone. It's a problem in the world. And when you open the papers today, you'll see that some of the, the countries, the prominent people in the countries who have been active in very prominent positions, uh, discovers that they were doing things that in Latin America are not done. Hmm? Good. OK. Hi, my name is Rodrigo Aguilar. I'm an MPA student um, from Venezuela as well, here at the LSE. Um, my question goes in line, when you, go, when you make recommendations to extreme countries, let's say, that have very different economical positions than what you were recommending, what are your uh, primary negotiation uh, skills that you use in order for you to convince these governments that they should um, change their path? Well, uh, to be quite frank, you know, if I take the the member countries of CAF, in the macroeconomic side with most of them, they not need a piece of advice because they have done a good job. Uh, the cases which are more difficult are, are not for because of the lack of, of knowledge necessarily, it's because of political conditions. And especially if you're here in this school, one of the advantages of London School of Economics is that it's not a purely technocratic economy, but you have to take into account. And to understand the Venezuelan situation, you have to understand the political environment in which the, the country is moving, both in the, in the official side and in the opposition. And so that, in my opinion, complicates things. So the piece of advice that we can give in the, in the political side, we can have our own opinions, but I don't think it's our role to, to try to interfere in that. But, I think that the act has to be put together, and the act essentially is an act that has to do with political will, and necessarily find a way between the different forces, with the government in the opposition to have an agreement that at time of difficulties, the only way countries get out of the mess is if they put their act together and, 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 and have a common agenda. Hmm? Okay, great. So um, the second row, let's here, and we'll try to get a couple of others. Hi, I'm Tanya Harmer from the International History Department. Um, on that um, discussion about political will, I'm thinking historically and I'm thinking back to the Alliance of Progress and talk about inclusive growth and reform that has occurred before in Latin America's history. And I'm wondering what, what do you think 
Does the political will exist within the region for a long-term development strategy that can be sustainable beyond presidential terms? Um, how, do, how do we separate development strategy or include it within short-term kind of um, presidential or administrative terms? Okay, and let's just pass it across this. There's somebody on the other side here, yeah, in the black, or either one, take first, and then to the man in the black jersey, black sweater. I'm Carlos Ochoa. I'm a master's degree student for financial mathematics at UCL. Uh, President Garcia, thank you very much for that amazing talk. My question is uh, towards the actual situation of Colombia regarding the peace talks. Eventually, those peace talks will end up in a, in a signature of the peace uh, process. Uh, how can the, an entity such as CAF contribute to that post-conflict era? What are the main uh, development uh, procedures that uh, CAF can do to help improve uh, that, 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 that moment uh, in time? Thank you very much. Okay. And the last question for the man in the black sweater. Hi, my name is Adele ramos Tarat, and I'm an uh, international politics and international relations student, uh, particularly of the developing world, and I'm very much interested in, to, in the preservation of, of South American identity, of the South American people, and how that conflicts with their, with their attempts of, of, of developing their economies and societies, maybe. And um, to, to, what ex to what extent has there been a conflict with their identity and their attempt to sort of engage with the wider world. I mean, Evo Morales has recently secured his third, third term in office, and that's because he's seen as representing the indigenous populations of the people. And yeah. Okay. Um, first, I think that uh, definitely uh, there is a conflict between the electoral processes that imply you know that you are in the government for four years or five years. Yeah. So that there is a tendency uh, sometimes in not thinking in the medium long term but to think what, what is going to be positive in terms of the next election. Uh, governments that have been for a longer time, they have the facility to do that. But how do you solve that? I think the only way to solve it is to have an institutional mechanism that will permit uh, different players, different parties, opposition, government, social society, have a forum, a way to get certain consensus. Obviously, governments are different enough to look at many things, but obviously certain things require a consensus. Education, for instance, you, you cannot solve education for years. You have to have a long-term plan, infrastructure, to build up institutions, the separation of power, those things require time. But this is an issue, indeed, and especially when, when you have a, a situation in which uh, you have a good macroeconomic environment, uh, then the tendency is to do things that, that are pay off very shortly, investments that are quick, not necessarily investments that are, but that's a big issue, it's more a political issue. Now, on the other one, uh, it was, uh, oh, Colombia. No, definitely, well, Colombia is one of the countries that, that is doing fairly well. I think that what Colombia is doing in, in trying to, to get a solution, finally, of this, this problem, and then to get to, to peace, is a very, very positive thing, very important thing. 
And, and of course, in the case of institutions like, like mine, we are quite willing to support in different ways uh, the, the process post-conflict. And we, in fact, we have offered that to, to President Santos and to other players to, to finance uh, programs and projects to help, uh, because I think that for Colombia, if Colombia solves that, that issue, that historical issue, Colombia is a country which has a tremendous chance to, to really go. Uh, because it has it's a medium-sized, a big medium-sized country. It has well-educated people, it has a good working force, good location, so the conditions are there. So we're willing, and, and I'm sure that the other institutions that are deal with development are, are willing to do so. So the, we hope that it is not an easy task to get the agreement. Uh, no, it's difficult because there are several issues and there are uh, many differences of opinion within the, the society. And the, 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 the distance between uh, the government and opposition is, 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 is becoming a little too tough. And I think it's time to, to calm down and try to have a common front and try to solve the issue. Okay, and there's the question about political will for the long term. The last one? Political will for long-term solutions. No, that's what... There, yeah, no, this, I, you I, consider I this an answer? Okay, yeah, that's fine. No, Good. the other one was on the indigenous... Or and, well, there, there is the issue about the um, Latin American identities, oh, and yes. whether they were well, being I lost think, in uh, development. There are good, good examples on that. Uh, again, I'll go to the example of my country, I think, of Bolivia. I think the fact that the president of Bolivia, President Evo Morales, precisely in a democratic way, became the president of Bolivia eight years ago. It, it's a, a clear indication that the democratic process was able to do that. That's point number one. The second thing, which I, I, I use Bolivia because I know Bolivia very well. The second thing is that notwithstanding that at the beginning there were tensions, uh, today one can say that that has changed a lot. Uh, Bolivia today has a more inclusive clearly inclusive society. It started from the president, and I see with optimism that they are that factor. Uh, very, so it's possible. But of course, a very crucial element to be successful is how the economy is working. In fact, if the economy will be in, in trouble, probably the tensions will exist. And if you go to the elections that took place in, in Bolivia, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and Mr. Morales won by a very solid margin of 61%. Uh, well, part of the explanation is that, that, that not only the people who supported him at the beginning, but many of the people who were traditionally in the opposition, the private sector, so forth, they, they voted for him. So it's possible. There has to be political will in good economic conditions for that purpose. Good. There, let's take one last uh, tranche of questions. There's somebody in the far end, and over on that side, in the about the second row from the back on the left side. Hi, thank you. Uh, yeah, my name I is think. Carolina, PhD student in political economy from Kings, and um, I would like to ask, what is your view regarding the position of South America towards the current negotiations and possible effects of these uh, mega trade agreements, such as the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade and Investment Partnership? Well, this, the issues of trade are complicated issues, are very complicated issues. And uh, 
And of course, we see that many, I'll go a little bit to the experience in, 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 in the different integration schemes in, in, in South America. Uh, we were very ambitious in the, in the late 60s and the 70s to, to copy as, as close as possible the agreements of the European Union. And the, 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 the history shows that we wanted to go farther, not only free trade among ourselves, but the external tariff, all the things. And what we see now is that the external tariff died in most of the And even the free trade among the, the members of some of the groups is not working. Now, on this other issue that you, you, you mentioned, I am not that familiar with the, exactly what's the status of the, of, of the, of the uh, negotiation, but of course there was some concern, especially in the, in the countries that are, are working on the Alliance for the Pacific, they were concerned about the movements that can occur. Uh, what is true in, in the case of Latin America uh, is that perhaps we should not be so biased to the Pacific, but we have to look at the Atlantic too. And there is a movement today to say that President Lagos from Chile has, is very smart and he said very clearly, let's not talk about this difference Pacific-Atlantic because at the end the main the, the main port of the, of, the, of the Pacific is not in, in Colombia, it's not in the Pacific, it's in the Atlantic. You know? So let's not talk about that. We, we have to look at, at the broader sense. And, and there are initiatives also to build up a similar thing in the Atlantic. And you look, you have Canada, you have the United States, you have the Caribbean, you have South America, you have Europe, you, UK, you have Africa. So we have to be more open in the discussion. But on the concrete question, I'm sorry, and my colleagues, I'm sure they don't know. I don't want to embarrass them. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass them. I, if, I would love to embarrass them, but I prefer to embarrass myself. Huh? Okay. Very good. And a last question from the far other side of the room here. I won't say left and right. <laughs> Thank you very much. My name is Isabel Hilton. I'm a journalist, and I edit Chinadialogue.net. Um, you mentioned the need for transparency and accountability, particularly in terms of foreign companies operating in Latin America. We hear quite a lot of negative feedback from um, Latin American networks on Chinese companies in this respect, that, that it is very difficult to... Um, to have any kind of active dialogue with, with, between civil society and Chinese companies. Uh, we hear this particularly in Ecuador, but not exclusively. Um, and I just wondered if you'd like to comment whether Chinese companies were singular in that regard, or, or worse or better. Um, and if I may very quickly, I just also looking at the future of Latin America economically, I wondered how much climate vulnerability was factored into economic planning. You can see big impacts already, okay. Sao Paulo, Glacier Fed, uh, water supply, in Peru and Bolivia. Is that an active part of, of, of development thinking and economic planning? Okay, so the second question was about factoring the environmental consequences into economic planning. The first was, are Chinese companies distinctively difficult for civil society organizations to influence and relate to in Latin America? Well, the, one of the issues, the questions that come out in, in, in Latin America on, on some of the investment and participation of Chinese enterprises is that uh, contrary to what, uh, for instance, some European 
investors or U.S. investors do. They, they go with investment and they, they hire people, you know, the labor and everybody. They, the Chinese get there in a plane with everybody. They build a ghetto there and they work that. And that creates a very tense situation. And I think that uh, they are starting to get conscious of that because if they want to have a long-term relationship, obviously they have to build the trust. And, and not because investment, part of the merits of investment is, is that you create, you, you invest one dollar and you create condition via multiplier effect. You create employment, you create consumption. But if you bring everything, that's not a not, not problem. And on the environmental thing, uh, the, that's a, well, that's a very central issue in, in, in terms of, of the concerns that, that we, we have to have a society. And it applies not only to the Chinese investment, to everybody. And one of the things, for instance, in our case, that we are so strong in infrastructure, what we are doing is we are promoting the good preparation of feasibility studies that from the beginning they include in the consideration of alternatives, the environmental and social inputs. And I'll give an example. If you have to build a road, uh, normally the engineers decide what to do. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I'll go back to the Bolivian case. There's a, a, a central, a, a wonderful natural resource park in the middle of, 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 of Bolivia, in Santa Cruz. And there's a road there. And some provide suppliers, of course, they wanted to build a road, and they, they offered financing. And of course, they, 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 the engineers, and they just went through the park. They won. It was a big mess, a big discussion. And the argument that some of the people defending the project said, well, because if we went directly, it costs, let's say, $200 million. If we would go around, it would cost much more, $300 million. That's not correct, because if you measure all the costs applying externalities, cost-benefit analysis practice, it means that this will not cost 100, but it will cost 400, and the other one will cost less. So the, the central message is that in all activities, we should include from the beginning the concept of the environment, because this is a very serious and dramatic case. If you see the weather change, what is happening in, in the mountains, you, you look at the mountains in many South America, they used to be with snow all year, now it's start to move. You go to, to the northern part of the world. So this is something that has to be a very important. I hope that the, the school here puts a lot of emphasis on the professionals, notwithstanding what career they come from, that this is an ethical, an ethical principle and value that has to be defended at first. Great. Thanks. Let me think. We do. So, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me mention that there is the annual CAF LSE conference taking place on Friday the 16th of January and invite you all to attend what uh, last year was a terrific event and promises to be a terrific event this year. Again, um, bringing together CAF and LSE. We now celebrate the extent to which Enrique has done this. I encourage you to um, visit the Global South Unit website and to learn more because although Enrique accounts for 90% of the knowledge, he does not account for all of the knowledge and you can find more there on the website. Please join me in thanking Enrique. <laughs>